Acts. We're back in the book of Acts. We spent a few years in the book of Acts working our way through it, but we interrupt it because it's a long series. We interrupt it with shorter series, like we just had a short multi-week series on Psalm 25. We're back into Acts today, and it actually is a good passage that bridges the gap between Psalm 25 and the book of Acts because in this particular account, the focus is going to be on embracing the path of pain. It's built into our passage. So turn to Acts chapter 21. We're going to be looking at verses 1 through 16. Speaking of pain, uh, I had a cold this week, and I had to take ibuprofen because I had a really bad headache. And so I just take like eight. I don't know what, I don't know what it says on the bottle. I take a lot because it hurts and it needs to go away. So I take a bunch of ibuprofen with the Diet Coke, and then uh, and it goes away. And I do that because I don't like pain. I don't like pain. But I have a lot of tattoos, well, relatively speaking. Compared to most of you, I have a lot of tattoos. And, um, and they all hurt. People are like, does it hurt? Where does it hurt more? Does it hurt? And it's like it, everywhere. Everywhere hurts, like chest, it, by your elbow, like all, all hurts terribly, terribly bad. But I would never, for free tattoos, put like that numbing cream on and then get a tattoo, A, because I'm proud and, uh, and I don't want to look like a baby, and B, for some reason, I have this idea in my head that the pain is a part of the process of getting the tattoo. comes with it. You don't deserve it if you don't feel the pain. It's not in the Bible. It's in the book of Joe. <laughs> anyway, it had me thinking. It had me thinking, like, you know, pain, pain is, is, is difficult, and it's, it's certainly a result of the fall, right? Like, we understand pain, suffering, affliction, and we try to find ways to alleviate the pain in life. But sometimes we understand that pain is necessary, that pain can even serve good purposes. In fact, pain in life is oftentimes good. Pain teaches us that something is dangerous and we need to let go or stay away. In, in mixed martial arts or in jujitsu, when you get, uh, not you, like you and I are doing it, but when those of you who do it, or if you ever watch it, um, somebody gets put into an arm bar and they experience pain. Now, the fighter is not trying to break the arm of his opponent, but he puts him in a position where he could, applies pressure. He feels the pain saying, my arm will be broken, broken if I don't tap out and give up. Pain serves a purpose in that way. It tells us there's danger here, avoid. And sometimes pain is a necessary part of development, like going to the gym. I don't do that, but those of you that do, do know going to the gym is painful. It hurts. The buildup of lactic acid in your muscles, it burns, right? And so, and, and the more you go, the more you understand, like, this temporary pain is good and necessary so that I can avoid the long-term pain of an unhealthy body that breaks down and doesn't serve me or my family well. Pain is sometimes necessary. But pain is always a reality. Life in a broken world involves pain. Paul certainly experiences that here in Acts 21, or he's addressing it. So let me tell you the principle that I want us to hold on to. And then I'll explain how we're going to break down our time together. Here's the principle. We can embrace the path of pain by knowing God's purposes, receiving God's help, and following God's ways. We can and should embrace the path of pain. Path of pain. In other words, the Christian life is, to varying degrees, a path of pain. It is not, it is not that exclusively. It's not just pain. 
but it does involve a path that is marked by trials and tribulations. So we can embrace the path of pain by knowing God's purposes, receiving God's help, and following God's ways. What we'll do is we're going to look at uh, the sermon will have two parts. We'll talk about the passage. We're going to go through uh, verses 1 through 16. Then we're going to talk about the point, which I just gave you in three parts. Okay, first, the passage. And just by way of refresher, or if you're new here to Redeemer, in the book of Acts, you could basically break the book of Acts into two parts. You got uh, the first part really focuses on Peter, and the second part really focuses on Paul. And of course, it's about what God is doing through them and the church and all of that. But in terms of leading characters, Peter, then Paul. Now we're into Paul's section, obviously. And Paul has gone on three missionary journeys, right, where he's planting churches and, and encouraging the saints and building them up in the faith and having fellowship and all of that. He's, done, he's on his third trip, right, third missionary journey, making the rounds. And now we're at the end of his third missionary journey, and he set his sights on Jerusalem. He's going back home, home base, going to Jerusalem. He's got a few stops to make along the way that he wants to make, that he feels compelled to make. And here's what travel looks like. You can just start in verse 1. And when we had parted, we, by the way, Luke is writing this, so this means Luke is with them in this part of the journey. When we had parted from them and set sail, we came by a straight course to cause. And the next day, to Rhodes, and from there to Patara. And having found a ship crossing to Phoenicia, we went aboard and set sail. And when we had come in sight of Cyprus, leaving it on the left, we sailed to Syria and landed at Tyre, for there the ship was to unload its cargo. That's kind of how things were working. Paul and his buddies who were on this missionary trip, they would board cargo ships. They'd set sail, sailing along the coast, going from region to region, city to city, until they would have to jump ship, try another one, until they get where they're trying to go. Now, along the way, as Paul is ending his missionary journey, he continues to make stops to visit with Christians because he needs fellowship, and they need his fellowship. Paul understands this keenly, probably because he understands pain so well. Fellowship is extremely important to the soul who is going to be enduring pain and affliction. And we see him doing it. We see it entire in verses uh, 4 through 6, starting in verse 4. And having sought out the disciples, so he lands in Tyre, and he seeks out disciples, that is, brothers and sisters in Christ. And we stayed there for seven days. So he's, he finds a place where there are Christians, and he's like, let's, let's sit down and let's encourage each other. Let's benefit from each other. Paul talks about this in the book of Romans, right? About, oh, I want to be edified by you. I want you to be edified by me. Like, let's get together and build each other up in the faith. Paul is an apostle, but he doesn't believe he has arrived. He needs help and encouragement, so he seeks out fellowship. Now, while he's there fellowshipping with the brothers and sisters, there is this component of their fellowship that I really like to see, and it's, we'll call it a spirit-led exhortation, which sounds charismatic, is not. And charismatic brothers and sisters, we love them. You guys are great. We don't speak in tongues and use tambourines. Um, nothing, like, that's fine. They can do that, but we don't do that. But we still love and respect them. But sometimes we get so spooked by the things that they do that we don't do, we're sometimes a little reticent to admit that God does lead us by the Spirit and move us to speak sometimes, right? And he does. He doesn't, and we see that here. If you back up, let's see, uh, verse 5. When our days there were ended, oh, no, back at verse 4. And having sought out the disciples, we stayed there for seven days, and through the Spirit, so the Spirit is moving people to talk here, and through the Spirit, they were telling Paul not to go on to Jerusalem. 
So the Holy Spirit is moving these people to say something, to issue a warning. Hey, listen, there's danger in Jerusalem. We don't want you to go. Just stay away. We love you, Paul. We want you to minister, have long life, we want you to prosper, all that. It sounds like Star Trek, but you know what I'm saying. I want, you to, I want you to be healthy and avoid persecution that's going to lead to death. Well, Paul hears that, you know, he's taking it in. Paul's a smart person. He's reasonable. He takes it in. But then it continues, when our days that were ended, we departed and went on our journey. And they all, with wives and children, accompanied us until we were outside of the city. And kneeling down on the beach, we prayed and said farewell to one another. Then we went on board the ship, and they returned home. Just note, in terms of fellowship, that the fellowship that the early church had, even in this case right here specifically, we see that it isn't just like the pop-in, hey, what's up, just wanted to touch base, you know, punch knuckles, and then you, you get out. It's, it's not that. There's time spent together. And there is a, a kind of relational, familial intimacy so that when this group is now leaving, everybody is going with them to the point of departure. Men, women, husbands, wives, kids, they all go because they are sending off brothers. They're sending off family. They love them. They care about them. And they take time to pray. By the way, since we're talking about fellowship, this is a church that believes in prayer. And I know that you all pray. You pray for me. You pray for each other. I feel it when you're praying for me. I hope you are feeling it as we are praying for you. This is a church that definitely, truly prays for one another. But one of the things that most of us need to push into is not just praying for one another in our absence, but praying over one another in our presence. Right? This is a mark of fellowship that we see throughout Scripture and that really we see historically. If you have a brother or a sister who is about to engage in something that is serious, that requires prayer, if you see that they are burdened or hurting, uh, if you see that, uh, that they are in need in some way, you should ask, may I pray for you now? That is a totally appropriate thing. And yeah, if you don't normally do it, it's going to feel awkward. But you know what? We're family. Awkward's okay. It's okay to be, it's okay for it to be awkward. And you know what? Nobody's going to be like, ew, don't pray for me. That's weird. They might think it's weird. But take a moment to pray for them. And don't pray long. Don't do the five, 10-minute prayer praying over people. Ain't nobody got time for that, okay? But take a moment to pray for them. Pray for God's blessing, peace, protection, whatever it is. Pray, put your hand on their shoulder. Pray for them earnestly. Send them on their way. That's an important aspect of, of fellowship together that we want to continue to cultivate and improve on here at Redeemer. So, so he has fellowship entire, experiences all of this, and then he goes on, and as he goes to uh, Ptolemaeus and Caesarea, the fellowship continues. Look, uh, verse 7. When we had finished the voyage from Tyre, we arrived at Ptolemaeus. We greeted the brothers, and we stayed with them for one day. And the next day, we departed and came to Caesarea, and we entered the house of Philip, the evangelist, who was one of the seven, and we stayed with him. Fellowship continues, right? Paul is seeking it out for himself, for others. This is not a job, right? This is a calling and a general necessity for all believers. And he goes, they find Philip. Now, you remember Philip. We read about Philip in, in chapter 8. Philip was one of the deacons that was installed in 6. And, um, and it, we, he's an evangelist. He's always preaching the gospel. And we read about Philip in the Ethiopian eunuch in chapter 8, right? This guy's converted. And then so um, Philip baptizes him. Philip is a great example of what evangelistic uh, fervor looks like in the life of a follower of Christ. It mentions he has four unmarried daughters. I know why he's mentioning the daughters. I don't know why Luke is mentioning that they're unmarried. It's, I just find it weird. It's curious. 
Four daughters, okay, unmarried. Oh, all right. That's interesting because the Bible has a lot to say about that, right? Paul at times is like, hey, listen, if you're single, that's a great thing. That's a calling of God, whether it's temporal or long-term, like embrace that. Also promotes marriage. Like, so I don't, I don't think there's any judgment call on it. It's interesting that he's pointing out that his, he has four daughters that are unmarried who prophesy. You see it? It says, uh, verse 9, he had four unmarried daughters who prophesied. Like I just, like I just said, that's a pretty, pretty easy verse. And, and here's the idea. To, to prophesy, right, it, it's, it's, it's a gift. We see this happening, especially in the apostolic era. The gift of prophecy was a kind of preaching. It's a kind of speaking. It's a truth-telling. And it doesn't give us any real details about what kind of prophesying they were doing. And I kind of wish that it did. Make it fun. Make it more interesting for me. But it doesn't. It just simply states the fact that in the fulfillment of Joel chapter 2, when the promise for the new covenant is, I will pour my spirit out upon you, and your sons and your daughters will prophesy. And here's the fulfillment. The new covenant has come. Jesus has died, has risen from the grave. The kingdom is established. And he has four daughters who are all preaching, proclaiming the gospel. Is it encouragement, exhortation? Is it evangelism? Don't know. I do find it interesting that, that Philip is clearly said to be an evangelist, so maybe they've got their father's heart. But what were they prophesying here? It doesn't tell us, and I don't like to speculate. However, it is interesting that this passage is filled with brothers and sisters warning Paul. So perhaps... They are prophesying and warning Paul. We don't know. So he, the, the daughters are prophesying, and then we read about Agabus. Back to, uh, back to verse 10. While we were staying for many days, a prophet named Agabus came down from Judea. Now, Agabus, uh, we read about him in chapter 11. Uh, he prophesied, he's a, he's a servant of the Lord, prophet, and he prophesied that a famine is coming, and it was true, came, he's a true prophet. And now he's back, but he's, uh, he's, he's going to use a prop. And I'm not a fan of, of props in preaching and teaching. I don't like that at all. I think that's, you know, it's not a biblical thing, obviously, because Agabus is going to use a prop. Uh, I just don't like it. I'm too insecure of a man to use a prop. He is clearly not. Here's what it says. Coming to us, he took Paul's belt and he bound his own feet and hands and said, thus says the Holy Spirit, this is how the Jews at Jerusalem will bind the man who owns this belt and deliver him into the hands of the Gentiles. Another warning, another warning about Jerusalem. He's not saying don't go. He's just saying this is what's going to happen if you go takes off the belt. Listen, this is so important to Agabus. He wants to drive this home. So he's like, I got to make sure he really gets it. I feel like just saying it would be enough, right? But he says, no, Paul, can I borrow your belt? By the way, if you ever ask to borrow my belt, what will the answer be? No, you may not. You may not borrow my belt. Uh, that's a weird request, and I just would never agree to it. Paul's like, sure, you can borrow my belt. I don't care. So he binds his hands and his feet to show the picture, like, listen, you're essentially going to be hogtied. You're going to be bound up and delivered over to the Gentiles. It's going to happen at the hands of your people, the people that you love, the people that you were trying to reach with the gospel. So he gets that warning. And then there's more, another warning, a caution that's coming from Paul's companions. You see verse 12. When we heard this, now Luke's including himself in this. When we heard this, we and the people urged Paul to not 
go to Jerusalem. How many times does this guy need to hear, hey, don't go to Jerusalem? You know, you hear it once, you're like, ah, I ain't worried about it. You hear it a couple more times, you're like, huh, maybe I'm not. At this point, it's like, maybe I shouldn't go, right? You take the hint, like God has put all of these people in my path, and all these people are telling me, maybe don't go to Jerusalem right now. It's, it's going to be dangerous. And Paul, uh, Paul has such a clear sense of, of conviction and, and courage and calling. He says, no, I'm going. I'm de- but, but I love this passage because it, it shows us that Paul is not just some stubborn, pig-headed dude that's going to do his own thing and go his own way because he doesn't need anybody speaking into his life. That's not, the, that's not how it's presented at all. Listen to verse 13. Paul answered, what are you doing? weeping and breaking my heart. For I am ready not only to be in prison, but even to die in Jerusalem for the name of the Lord Jesus. He's got conviction. He's got a sense of calling. He's courageous. He's ready to go. He's ready to die. But he's not, he's not dismissing it. His heart is breaking. He's feeling it because he cares. He's listening. These are his brothers and sisters, his family. And so when they're saying, hey, listen, we love you. We don't want you to die. He's like, I don't want to die either. I mean, it's like, I want to stay and minister, but I got to go. Is Paul being reckless? I mean, is he, is he ignoring God? This is interesting, right? Because these people are moved by the Spirit to caution Paul, aren't they? That's what it says. We have a prophet We have prophetesses. We have uh, people who are moved by the Spirit in the the company of the saints to say, hey, danger's there. Don't go. I like this because it indicates that God is oftentimes at work in our lives in, in ways that move us to actually disagree. And it doesn't mean that God's not at work in your life or my life, though we are disagreeing. Clearly, what we know on the back end of this is that God was moving among all of these saints to prepare Paul for the danger that was set before him. And some of them were taking it to say, hey, listen, don't go. And that clearly was not a part of God's plan for him to not go. The part of God's plan was for him to go. But they all had the same movement of the Spirit cautioning Paul about the danger there. And Paul says, I know there's danger. I am willing to suffer. I will embrace the path of pain set before me. And his friends ultimately understood. Verse 14, and since he would not be persuaded, which seems to indicate that they really did try to change his mind, why wouldn't they? They were led by the Spirit to tell him about this danger. He would not be persuaded. So we ceased and said, let the will of the Lord be done. That's how you do it. You trust the Lord in all of these situations in your life where you simply don't have the control. You go, okay, I'm going to trust that the Lord and his will will be done. And they go. They go to Jerusalem. Verse 15, after these days, we got ready and we went up to Jerusalem. And some of the disciples from Caesarea went with us, bringing us to the house of Nason uh, of Cyprus, an early disciple with whom we should lodge. That's the passage. They go to Jerusalem. And Paul goes to embrace pain. Let's talk about the point. The, the point here really hinges on the idea that the Christian life is marked by the path of pain. Now, the Christian life is not exclusively one of pain, but it is one necessarily marked by pain. 
Not exclusively. So it's not all pain. Listen, if the Christian life was all pain, it'd be a bummer. Uh, I would not be excited about those days. But no, the, the Christian life is marked by joy and peace. And not just peace and joy in our communion with God through Jesus Christ our Lord. He gives us earthly blessings and worldly blessings as well to enjoy and to rejoice. Every good gift that we receive in this life comes from the Father in heaven who loves us and wants to bestow on us such things. There is much to enjoy from the hand of God that is spiritual and that is earthly. But there is a guarantee that there will be pain, affliction, difficulty, distress, discouragement in our lives. And we will need to learn to embrace the reality, to embrace it. Now, there are, there are two basic reasons that we will encounter pain in this life, right? Uh, one is because of our faith, we will suffer, right? We'll suffer on account of our faith. But the other is we will suffer on account of just the brokenness of the world. We aren't being attacked for our faith. But even then, we will have to suffer in our faith, with our faith. That you will suffer because of your faith, we, we know this, right? This is, this is spoken about so much throughout Scripture. We're familiar with it. 2 Timothy 3.12, I'll just read it briefly. It says, indeed, all who desire to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. Now, that's going to look different in different cultures and different days. Here in America, in our context, at least in my experience, uh, I'm most likely to be like, socially embarrassed, maybe, because I confess Christ. Or maybe I'll lose a relationship. Or uh, maybe somebody will get annoyed and say bad things to me on the internet. Uh, it's possible I might get my, my lights punched out or something. Uh, but I'm, I'm not going to lose my life, probably, as a result of confessing Christ today in America. But in other parts of the world, you do. You risk your health. You risk your livelihood. You risk your very lives. So we know that sometimes we suffer because of our faith. And that's what Paul is dealing with here. He's dealing with a pain that is directly tied to his profession of faith. Well, just to put a, another little stamp on it, uh, John 15, you know, Paul's saying it because Jesus said it. In John 15, verse 20, Jesus said, remember the word that I said to you, a servant is not greater than his master. If they persecuted me, they will also persecute you. So we, we know this, and, and this is something that we will experience in different ways from time to time. Sometimes we will suffer for our faith, but we will always be called to suffer in our faith. Because when you encounter the difficulties, the tragedies, uh, the, the betrayals, the disappointments, the failures, all of the pain that we experience in life as Christians, we have to work through, walk through with our faith. The pain that you experience in life is varied. Sometimes it's physical, right? It could be a disease. Uh, it could be a broken femur on the baseball field. Had one of those recently. Ooh. We have uh, mental pain that we experience, emotional pain, relational pain. And those are all, that's all real. Those hurt, that, that kind of pain can, can be debilitating. And sometimes the pain point is right in the present. You're going through it now, but some of you are suffering pain which has the point of contact decades ago in your past, and you're still feeling it, you're still dealing with it. It can still crush you. 
And when we are dealing with this pain, we have to somehow learn how to embrace it. That doesn't mean that we don't seek relief. It doesn't mean that we don't seek escape or help. But there has to be a way that we can embrace the path of pain, which means, for many of us, walking with Christ through that affliction. In other words, we're supposed to suffer as Christians. We're supposed to suffer, they used to say it this way, we're supposed to suffer well. How do we suffer well? How do we, practically speaking, embrace the path of pain? Well, we do it by knowing God's purposes, receiving God's help, and following God's ways. Right? So let me walk through these briefly to paint a picture for us. This is what Paul is doing throughout his life as he's experiencing these painful losses and crosses. First, we've got to know God's purposes. And let's just say it broadly. You've heard this a bunch, right? You've said it probably. We say it here a lot. The purposes of God are varied. We can't know all of the reasons why God does all of the things that he does. But we can always know a few of them because he's told us. God does what he does in your life, in my life, in this church's life. God does what he does for his glory and for our good. Always those two things. Now, you might say, like, okay, I'm going through pain, and it's really bad, and it's really painful, and it's really grueling, and there's injustice, or it's unfair. How is God glorified in a demonstration of evil or suffering? How is God, does he just like it when bad things happen? That's not the point at all. That's not what we're saying, and that's not what the Word says. The glory of God is seen in your pain by means of your faith. God is glorified. We don't add to his glory. We reflect it like mirrors. People can see God's glory in your pain when your faith is evident. Because instead of cursing God and dying, like Lot's wife said Lot, uh, Lot should, Job should do, Job would not curse God. Instead, his faith remained intact. In the darkest, most difficult days of his life, he confessed that God is good, that God is just, that God is fair. God is glorified in our suffering by our faith. And, and that's a purpose, right? That gives us a purpose in the midst of our suffering. OK, I am called to maintain communion with God, trust in God, belief in God now when I am tempted to maybe turn away. That purpose orients us so that we're not just wandering in the dark of our affliction. The purposes of God include his glory and our good. And by our good, I mean our growth. Sometimes it's hard. I know Christians throw this thing, around. God causes all things to work together for the good of those who love him. And they say that to people that, you know, they're having their, they're chained up by jigsaw and they got a saw off their arm. I don't know, I have my own references. But the point is like you're going through like a really difficult time, right? When you're like, you're trying to figure out how am I even gonna make it through this and somebody's telling you God means this for good. God means my pain in my life that is excruciating and makes me want to give up. He's meaning this for my good. This is a better way to say it. God will use the pain. God will even use the evil for your good, for your benefit. He will use what the world intends for evil. He will use what the devil intends for your destruction to make you undefeatable. He will use it to make you grow. Let me give you a couple of passages. Romans chapter 5, verses 3 through 5. Not only that, but we rejoice in our sufferings, knowing that suffering produces endurance. 
And endurance produces character, and character produces hope. And hope does not put us to shame because God's love has been poured into our hearts through the Holy Spirit who has been given to us. When we are suffering, we have this assurance that there is a purpose that goes beyond the immediacy, that our suffering leads to endurance, right? God will make us strong so that we can continue. By the way, just to be honest with you, God will use the suffering in your life to make you stronger so that you can suffer again. I'm just trying to be honest with you. There are great, beautiful days ahead, yes, but there are still valleys of darkness that you will have to walk through. And every time you go through periods of suffering and affliction and loss, it's strengthening you so that you can persevere again and again. It builds our character. It's not what doesn't kill you makes you stronger. Not always. Sometimes you're made weaker by things like poison, and you don't get better, and you don't get stronger. That's not the idea. It's not that what doesn't kill you makes you stronger. It's that God will use your afflictions to ultimately grow you to become the person that you need to be. Consider James chapter 1, verses 2 and 4, 2 through 4. Count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds, for you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness, and let steadfastness have its full effect, that you may be perfect, complete, lacking in nothing. It's not the idea of absolute perfection. That word perfect means mature. In other words, do you want to be mature? You want to be a mature believer who has a real strong faith? You want to be a godly man, a godly woman? All the mature Christians I know, by the way, don't say that they are mature. <laughs> they don't see themselves that way. We see them that way. They don't, they don't talk about themselves as being mature in the faith and all that usually. But every Christian that I know wants to be mature because they want to be whole. They want to be the fullest, most complete version of themselves. They want to be fully human. They want the corruption of sin, the corruption of humanity to be removed. They want to look like their Father in heaven. They want to look like Jesus. Do you want that? Well, you know, well, I, need, I need to read my Bible. Yes, you do. I need to pray. Yes, God uses these as means to grow us spiritually, to conform us to the image of Christ. But you will also need to embrace the path of pain. You cannot become mature. You cannot become the person God has designed you to be apart from affliction in this world. And it's not the affliction that does it. It's God that does it in the midst of the affliction as he walks with you, right? Because we have to get beyond just the purposes and, and get to the, the help, right? So we got to know God's purposes if we're going to embrace the path of pain. we got to know God's purposes, but we also have to receive God's help. And the help that we need is varied when we're going through pain and suffering. But uh, it, I'll give you three, three that are really important. We need help to overcome temptation, right? Because when you're going through difficulties and pain, boy, there is, there is this, uh, the devil takes the opportunity to encourage you to, uh, to lash out, to do anything that will alleviate the pain. And oftentimes what alleviates pain, right, what, what distracts us are the things that are, it's a, a, a sinful, immediate gratification. Sometimes, uh, we, all the time, we need God's help in overcoming our weaknesses by becoming strong. Listen to Hebrews chapter 2. Hebrews 2, 14 through 18, dealing with temptations. Since therefore the children share in flesh and blood, and he himself, Jesus, likewise partook of the same things, fully human like us, 
that through death he might destroy the one who has the power of death, that is the devil, and deliver all of those who through fear of death were subject to lifelong strangely, uh, slavery. For surely it is not angels that he helps, but he helps the offspring of Abraham, right, the people of faith. Therefore, Jesus had to be made like his brothers in every respect so that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in the service of God to make propitiation for the sins of the people. For because he himself has suffered when tempted, he is able to help those who are being tempted. Jesus will help you in the midst of your temptation. Now, I know that you all know what it's like to experience brutal temptation to say the wrong thing, to do the wrong thing, and especially in the midst of pain. Boy, you are tempted. So I want you to think about a time when you've been tempted and you know that you need help but you don't ask for it. How often does that happen? I'll answer for myself. A lot. Because I'm stupid. I don't know what that is. I know I need help. And in the midst of the temptation, instead of asking God, help me right now, what do I do? I try to white knuckle it through. I'll just resist for as long as I can until I give up. It's too common. It's just too common. Why would we expect that we're going to be delivered and get the help that we need if we don't ask God, will you please help me in the midst of this temptation? Jesus was tempted in every way, in all of his pain, in all of his suffering. He was tempted just like us, more than us, and he persevered in holiness. And now he comes to our aid to help us in our, in our darkest, most weakened state when we were being tempted. And it's not just in temptation specifically, but in all of our weaknesses, Jesus is our help. In Hebrews chapter 4, verses 14 through 16, it says, Since we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God, let us hold fast our confession, for we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet without sin, let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace that we might receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. He is there. He is there in the darkness, in the midst of pain. He is present and not just able to help, not just willing to help. It's guaranteed help if we will ask for it. It's not the guarantee that he's going to take the pain away. There is the guarantee that he will help you in the midst of it. You want to embrace the life of pain, which is the only way to really, really make it and thrive in this life. Uh, you got to know God's purposes and you have to receive God's help. One of the great helps that we get from God, by the way, one of the greatest, I'll say it this way, one of the greatest helps that we get from God when we are in pain is comfort to comfort. In other words, it, in your pain, one of the great ways that God helps you is he comforts you so that you might then comfort someone else who is hurting. It never ends with you. It doesn't end in you. He comforts you that you might comfort others. Let me give you another passage. Uh, 2 Corinthians chapter 1, verses 3 through 4. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of all mercies and the God of all comfort, who comforts us in all our affliction, so that we might be able to comfort those who are in any affliction with the comfort with which we ourselves are comforted. So just take note of that. Of all the things God is doing in your life, we can know a few of them. He's working for his glory. He's working for your good. And if you are suffering, 
He intends for you to be comforted by him in the midst of it so that you can then comfort others, which means one of the great ways that God comforts us in our pain is through his people. God says, I'm going to comfort you so that you can comfort others. Well, then how does God comfort you but through others? Yes, God's Holy Spirit works in our hearts and he guards our minds and he does all of these things. He protects our souls. But one of the great ways in which God serves us and helps us is through his church. So we know God's purposes, we receive God's help, and we must follow God's ways. I'll be quick here. Um, the temptation, oftentimes, when you're in pain, uh, is to either stop moving or to start to sort of buck and resist. And that manifests itself in the faith with uh, disobedience sometimes, right? And the psalmists talk about this. The psalmists talk about, I'm in a bad space. I'm hurting really bad. I look around, and I see the wicked, and I see what the wicked are doing. They're doing all the bad things, all the things God says not to do. They're doing them. And you know what? Their life looks pretty good. They're not in trouble. They're not in pain. Their life is easy. Um, I'm thinking about going that way. Because oftentimes, when you are experiencing pain and you hold the Christian faith, the pain is intensified. It's called the Barrett, following God's way in faith, trusting, obeying. You know that Micah 6 8. God, what do you want me to do? What does God require of us? But to do justice, to love mercy, and to walk humbly with God. In pain, if we're going to embrace that path, then we must follow the path according to God's ways, which means we're not just aware about what we should be doing, but we're aware of other people. Like doing justice, loving mercy means we're aware of the people around us. But the key here in all of it is humility. If, if, I've, if I have learned anything in, in the 30-some years I've been a Christian, and I'm, I haven't learned it, I'm, God's been trying to teach me this, is if I am ever going to be able to endure pain and suffering, I had better learn humility. Meaning, I understand who God is, good, glorious, right, perfect in all that he does, and I, made in God's image, made for him, but broken, marred, and in need of help, am in no place to boast or demand anything of God, but to submit myself to him and to trust him and his way, humility is key. If we're going to embrace the path of pain, we've got to know God's purpose, receive God's help, and know his ways. Um, let me just wrap it up by saying this. Uh, Jesus suffered to save us. We know this, right? Jesus suffered to save us. Jesus suffered on the cross to save us from our sins. His suffering is our salvation. Jesus suffered to save us. And Jesus suffered to show us. It's both. He suffered to show us what a life of faith looks like. He is an example. So two passages of Scripture. 1 Peter chapter 3, verse 18. For Christ also suffered once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous, that he might bring us to God. If you are not a follower of Jesus, I want to encourage you to consider Christ who suffered for sinners like you. He suffered on the cross by taking upon our guilt and shame, removing it from us and giving us this gift of reconciliation to God. We can be at peace with God, know him. Our sin is no longer a barrier or a burden. 
God looks upon the one who believes in Christ as holy and pure, pristine, clean, blameless, even though we are still corrupt in our lives, forever perfectly acceptable. I, I, I hope that you will consider Christ today to be the answer to your central, fundamental need. But Christ does not just suffer for our salvation. He, he, he suffers to show us. And that's, we see this in 1 Peter chapter 2, uh, verses 21 and following. For to this you have been called, because Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example, so that you might follow in his steps. He committed no sin, neither was deceit found in his mouth. When he was reviled, he did not revile in return. When he suffered, he did not threaten, but continued entrusting himself to him who judges justly. This is why we say the, the path of pain is a part of the Christian life, and it needs to be embraced not because every painful experience itself is good, but because it is a reality. We can't ignore it. So we embrace it by faith, trusting God to lead us through it, to give us strength, to lift us above it. If he won't remove the pain, he will at least lift our heads. And knowing that the pain that Christ suffered for our sins puts us at peace with God, but then it shows us how to suffer in the midst of sin in a sinful world. So in all of this, we look to Christ together as our only hope in life and in death, in suffering and in joy. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we do ask that you would teach us and preserve us in the midst of our good days where we can take you for granted, perhaps, and the harder days where we experience pain that we don't turn away from you in shame or anger. Lord, for those who are hurting, we pray that you would comfort them, that they would be strengthened and helped, that they would persevere, and that they'd be a help to others. And for those, Lord, who have not yet come to believe in Christ, we pray that today would be the day of their salvation, that they would see that you are good and worth trusting. We pray, Lord, that today they would find eternal life. In Christ's name we pray. Amen.